Hi everyone, this is Saya and you're listening to the Hearsay podcast. This is episode number 89 and my guest today is Georgia, full name Georgia Barnes. Georgia was here from the UK in August of this year to do some promo for her new album It's Euphoric and we recorded this chat over Zoom. She was in Sydney, I was in Brisbane. So please excuse some of the Zoom audio quality, Um, you know how it is. I think it worked out okay though. Uh, Georgia's dad was in the UK electronic band Left Field so she literally grew up around synthesizers apparently actually her bedroom was also their studio when she was a baby so this is quite synth heavy for those of you who are into that kind of thing for those of you who aren't I still think there's a lot in here for you she was super open about the recording of her new album about her feelings about releasing something Um, we talked a lot about her production collaboration with Rostam who's one of the founders and producers of the band Vampire Weekend um I also gave her a little tour of my studio, but I was off mic when I did that. So that has been cut out, but we do talk about it a little bit on mic after I did it. Um, What else do I have to tell you? I think that's it. Her strange show experience, or rather her en route to show experience, was illustrated by Matt King Harbottle. You can see more of his amazing stuff on Instagram at gunners.king or on his website theharbottle.com. Please enjoy episode number 89 with Georgia. Thanks so much for talking to me today. Thank you for having me. I have been listening to your beautiful album, It's Euphoric. It's only just come out. Where are you on the scale of happy, paranoid, nervous, all of that, (laughs) the the roller coaster that is releasing an album? I think it's, I'm I'm just relieved that it's out. Yeah. (laughs) relief more than anything like I I feel like I can now sort of breathe and live my life yeah thank god (laughs) it's such a crazy thing to do isn't it I actually just released an album on Friday and I think I finished it like a year and a half ago so it's been a really really long time and the whole emotional spectrum has happened between a year and a half ago and now where you're like I'm a genius and then you're like I'm the biggest fucking piece of shit who ever lived (laughs) yeah it's so true so well it's nice to know that I'm not alone in that you know it's nice to know that we all go through that can you imagine being the kind of person though who would just be like I'm a genius and not do the downward roller coaster bit yeah, I mean, there's probably, there are artists out there, I think, probably that just have absolutely no self-doubt whatsoever. Yeah. But I'm yet to come into contact with them. Yeah, um, I've met a couple. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. Wow. Just from wow. an anthropological level, it's super interesting mm. that people like mm. that exist. Mm. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, you know, I think everyone has their own way of dealing with it all but I, th- I think it's probably all part of the fun of it in a way in a weird way 
it's the strangely addictive as well, this part, you know, of like the torturous part. I think to see it all as a part of a journey and part of a pro- process is the healthiest way of looking at it. I mean, someone said to me, a very sort of big artist said to me, just lower your expectations. Yeah, that's smart. <laughs> I'm yet to be able to do that, you know, but that was probably the best bit of advice I got. But speaking of expectations, it's hard not to have them. I think when you put your Mm. heart and soul into something and listening Mm. to this album, I can really hear like so much thought and so much care and there's so Mm. much going on all the time. It must be hard to not have high expectations for it because you've put your whole self into it. Yeah, I mean, this album is, I do feel like I, I went on a real journey with it personally and you know and and musically and yeah we did both Rostam and I did pour a lot of ourselves into this record and the decisions that were made there was a lot of thought behind it and a lot of discussion so it's it the whole thing was very it was intense as well but yeah I mean I don't know I I think I just you know, you just want people to connect with it. That's That was the only expectation that I put on this record. I, I knew people weren't going to be able to kind of place it. Is it a pop record? Is it a dance record? Is it a da-da-da? Is it this? Yeah. We were very into kind of making a, a record that didn't sound like anything else that was kind of a bit in its own lane. And so I I, I knew that it would take a while for people to to get into it. Yeah, I think the first thought that I had when I listened to it was that it feels like an album. It feels like every song is really well sort of connected to each other. And then I also felt like the whole album is like less of a sort of narrative driven thing, which is like some of your other songs have been, but it's more like a vibe. I know that sounds Mm. really primitive and, you know, a bit creepy, but I do feel like it's you've created this soundscape that creates a feeling. And it's a great feeling. I was listening to it while I was riding my bike yesterday and I was like, this is a great bike riding record. <laughs> I really like it. I think that it. is, honestly, say, I think that's um, amazing that you've, that you feel that because that is exactly what me and Rostam wanted. We mm. wanted people to hear this record and just be like, this is a vibey, yeah. dancey, positive, energetic record. Totally. Even the slightly slower ones always end up with this kind of, you know, energy in them, and 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 that was very intentional. Rostam was very like, we've got to keep the energy up. Like he wanted people to be able to like work out to the album, to mm. bike ride to the album, yeah. to, you know. Yeah. So that's all very intentional. Oh, that's great! Can I tell you my favorite bit? Uh, yeah, the of bit course. that like immediately made me because I obviously really love synths and I'm such a sucker for arpeggiators and stuff which uh, there's a bunch on your record yep yeah but the one that really stood out for me where I was like yes is in mountain song you do a flute type arpeggiator and then immediately that that flute arpeggiator goes into like a sort of chorusy cure type guitar and I was like Mm. that is that's the vibe (laughs) yeah that's That's a great bit. I, I also, <laughs> not to toot my own horn, I also love that bit as yeah. well. I like the synth bit in Mountain Song where it breaks down and it goes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
I think that's really my favourite song on the record, but that flute arpeggiator was like, oh, my God. I'm trying Love to remember how we did that flute arpeggiator. I think maybe it was my, it was a loop made out of guitar. Oh, wow. My awful, awful playing of guitar. <laughs> but it, 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 it sometimes my awful playing kind of, if you loop, it up it creates quite interesting loops yeah I think that's yeah I think maybe that's it yeah and then it's doubled with a with a sort of arpege mm. flutey kind of sound yeah that song is a very um synth driven song yeah I mean the whole record's quite synthy it's quite like drums mm. bass vo- yeah. voice and then it's got these beautiful textures of um, of synth stuff. But, I, mm. yeah, I, I guess that when your lovely record label person, Lucy, who I love very much, when she <laughs> when she set up this interview, she was like, you guys will, will connect over synthesizers. And I was immediately excited. Can you tell me a little bit about Little Georgia and what it was like growing up at home and being surrounded by instruments? Yeah, there was no hope for me, really, to become anything else, I think. It was always destined to be in the kind of music world. Yeah, I was quite literally born at the time of my dad's band kind of going from the underground electronic dance scene in London to going to the mainstream. Yeah. So, And we were living in this bedsit in central London, when I was born, my bedroom was Leftfield Studio. Amazing. So that's kind of how they s- split up the kind of rooms. My mum and dad had this little like baby monitor and they put that in the studio where I was. And if I was crying, they'd come down. Mm-hmm. So I, I, yeah. And so I was literally surrounded by synths, outboard equipment from a very early age. I'm yeah. just imagining it's almost like a synth mobile hanging above your head. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit like that, actually. I just remember all these like weird bits of equipment. I do have vague memories of, of it and the smell, yeah. like the smell of a studio, which was yeah. very, it was, all, you know, people back then used to smoke and yeah, there was just like the smell of kind of dat machines and, and yeah. DA88s. <laughs> Yeah, I yeah. feel like <laughs> I feel like my studio smells a bit like that. Oh, I love can, that smell. Yeah, I love it too. It feels like feels really comforting. Yeah. It's weird when you go into studios now. Everything smells very like new, perfumed, and like yeah. you know they've got the sandalwood candle. I mean, can you imagine <laughs> the days in the nineties of bringing in a sandalwood candle <laughs> into the left field studio? They just would have gone. Fuck no. Off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's all. It's awesome. quite funny. Yeah. But uh, so I, I, I guess my love for synthesizers and outboard equipment started from there, really. Yeah. And then I just remember that the older I got, the more intrigued I got, and the more questions I'd ask my dad, like, "Oh, what does this do? And yeah. you know, what does that do? And what sound does that create? Like, and I, I think he. He sort of soon realised that I, you know, I had an interest in it and yeah. kept encouraging me to get in, you know, be in the studio with them. So it was from a very early age, actually. And then I got my first little Casio, probably age like seven or mm. six. 
my dad was really into those Casio keyboards. Yeah. I think it was a good excuse, you know, having a kid was a good excuse for him to buy, yeah, you know, little toys. <laughs> little toys. Yeah. Because they'd always end up going going missing. I'd be like, what? And I'd <laughs> be sort of with him and with Leftfield. It's funny. I guess it could have gone either way because you either want to follow in your family's footsteps or you have an aversion mm. to it. Mm. I'm so glad that you were interested. Yeah, my brother didn't want anything to do with music yeah. and stuff. Well, you know, he's he's musical, but he was like just not interested in it. Yeah. But yeah, I guess I just really loved it. From the moment I heard sort of thump an instrument or a, or a synthesizer, I was just like intrigued. Like, yeah. how is that happening? Yeah. You know, how, how is that making that sound? Amazing. What were the records that were playing in your house back then? Was it all EDM stuff or was it, <laughs> <laughs> was it some yeah. other stuff? My mum was really into like Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, kind of soul Motown he was she was Motown really mm, um the opposite she was from, of EDM <laughs> yeah she was from um a, a seaside town called Bournemouth which was very kind of it was all about 60s soul and mods and you know rockers and so she she was kind of from that background really so she would always play your classic artists and then obviously my dad would be playing all sorts, you know. I mean, I, I remember sort of techno, house. I remember lots of reggae and dub. Yeah, my dad was a huge, huge dub fan. So like very early kind of Lee Scratch Perry records. I mean, I was exposed to a lot of different types of music from a yeah. very early age, if I'm to be honest. And then I sort of had my own like top of the pops was you know the thing so I I, I loved the Spice Girls and I loved sure. mainstream pop music my mum was a big like pop fan so she would always be playing the kind of big pop you know like Madonna or Sade or the the, the kind of big artists of, yeah. of the 90s were being played in in the house yeah I mean it was just constant constant music constant musicians flowing in and out of our of our plays I mean, it was just completely dominated by Leftfield, really. So yeah. we were kind of exposed to everything, really. Yeah, I remember that time because I'm a little bit older than you and I remember when that Leftism album came out, I was in high school and I remember that being a really big deal in my friendship circle, especially amongst my older friends. That was yeah. like Leftism and The Orb and... Orbital. Orbital. And, yeah, yeah, I just remember that being like such a scene in the 90s, mm. even in Australia, which is, you know, arguably the furthest you can get away from the UK. Yeah, I I remember my dad coming to Australia very early on mm. and he was like, oh, gee, I'm going all the way across yeah. the globe yeah. down to this, down, down here. <laughs> I remember yeah. that. I remember that Australia kind of embraced that whole scene yeah. very early on. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Have you been to Australia before? I have, yeah. I've been once uh, with my family a long time ago. And then the, la the, the last time I was here was in 2019 and I was supporting Jungle. Oh, right. Uh, so, so we played all around Australia, which was fantastic. And that was the yeah. first time playing here. 
Awesome. But yeah, I, I'm so glad to be back. I, I, I love it here so much. So what are you doing? You're playing a couple of shows and doing a bunch of promo. Yeah, it's mainly promo, really. But yeah. we've kind of added in a few little showcases in record stores. Unfortunately, I haven't got like my band or anything, but I've got like a piano. And the good thing about these new songs is that I can just perform them with a the piano in my voice. So, yeah. We'll be you don't have that. your Simmons yeah. kit with you? I don't, unfortunately. <laughs> I know, it feels weird not having them with me. It looks um, so cool. Like the, the videos that I saw, I was like, oh, my God. Also, I have a question. What brain are you sure. using with the Simmons? Good question. So, yeah, we, we, we're we actually triggering them via Ableton, oh, okay, which you can yeah. do, yeah. you know, so they, they're going through a brain. So, you know, the good thing about the Simmons is that it's such early technology that yeah. it's, it, they can work with anything. So they just work with quarter inch jacks and you can kind of put them, put them in any trigger brain. So we've got this Roland ED50 brain that, that they go in and then that got, sends MIDI to the so computer. Yeah. Exactly. But there's, there's, super adjustable to whatever setup you want you just have to have a, a brain they've proved to be really kind of you know tall tall worthy they've, not, they've never broke they're, amazing they're like yeah they're pretty pretty incredible actually I mean they're, they're hard to play because they're just like literally it's like yeah. it's like hitting yeah wood yeah so you know so that's but I, I quite like that I quite like that that you know you're hitting something that's like different within the drum kit and it looks so good apparently in the 90s they weren't very in fashion and so people got rid of the actual pads and they kept the brains oh, the actual right. simmons brains because yeah. they were sort of worth more than the pads yeah. so when it came to buying them second hand there was actually hardly any left because people oh. were just like oh yeah I just threw the pads into a oh skip and I know I couldn't believe it um, wow I've got I've got a Simmons brain yeah. SDS8 yes which sounds yes. really great but I don't use Absolutely. I'm not a very good drummer so I just program it but it sounds amazing yeah yeah and you get the classic boo boo yeah exactly yeah 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 that's so what everyone have, wants, really. Yeah. Boo, 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 boo. Do you have backup pads then that you travel with? Yeah, we yeah. bought as many of the pads as we could yeah. just in case. So, yeah, at home I have Simmons collection now. <laughs> which That's awesome. Yeah, takes up a lot of space in my studio. I was going to say when you were talking about being able to play these songs with a keyboard when you're listening to the record I personally thought that it might have been written in pieces rather than being written in one sitting like at a piano mm -hmm. because there's so much going on in the songs but did you actually like sit down and write these songs on the piano yeah totally oh. it was one of the sort of compositional methods I wanted to explore more on this record was actually instead of previously a uh, piecing like one idea with another and then yeah. you know that's what I'm being familiar a, with exactly yeah. being a bit more into the production I wanted to just explore the structures on a piano and just seeing 
how thinking about the song first before the production, mm. where that would sort of take me, if that would open up some new doors or whatever. And it was it was kind of the way that also Rostam did things. It was hard at times because the first sort of recording sessions that I did with Rostam for about a month, what were kind of sitting down at the piano and making sure the songs kind of made sense. And mm. he would often say to me, you know, well, we need to get the melody, we need to get this, and don't worry about the production, don't worry about that yet. That's that's going to be the fun, easy part. They very much all kind of started as 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 me on 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 the piano. Wow, that's so interesting because it really mm. doesn't sound like that. It sounds like mm. it sounds so dense with like mm. production tricks. And I, I was going to ask: this is the first time that you've worked with another producer. Mm. Was that difficult to sort of surrender all control? <laughs> or or rather surrender some of the control. <laughs> yeah, I mean, me and Rostam met in 2019 before even Seeking Thrills, that was my previous record, mm. had come out. And we sort of had this amazing session together. I, I happened to be in LA October 2019 and we had been in contact over social media and stuff and we wanted to get together and make some music and and then I found myself in his studio and we wrote It's Euphoric, the single, mm. in, in that session, in that day. Amazing. And I, I just felt so excited and, and, and liberated from this kind of session that we just got on and he was very sensitive to the fact that I, I am also a producer, so he wasn't, you know, kind of dictating things and being like, you know, oh, no, we're going to do it like this. It was very much like collaborative. And I got back home and rung up my manager and was like, it, you know, can we do more sessions with Rostam because it was fantastic and I, mm. I, I think I'm going to learn something new. I guess the idea of working with someone else had always had, had, had already been implanted and I, I just thought surrendering parts of my control in the the production realm would perhaps free me up to concentrate on on parts of my composition that I need to work on, that mm. I need to improve, that I need to develop. You know, I sort of sometimes I'm sitting in the studio myself and I get very lost in the production, oh, yeah. you too. know, and I'm thinking about the bass drum. I'm thinking about yeah. the EQ between the bass and the drums, as you know, yeah. Yeah. you know, and you're you're consumed into, yeah. in that. And then suddenly your concentration is it's so fixed on that, that when it comes to writing lyrics or when it comes to doing the vote, you're, you're a bit like, oh, you know, a bit yeah. tired today. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, so surrendering that sort of side of things, I found very liberating, actually. And I was able to explore a bit more and develop and push myself, challenge parts of myself that I felt needed needed to be. Yeah. So obviously you worked well together, like on a personal mm. level. Mm. How do you go at taking suggestions or criticism from someone else when you haven't really had to deal with that before? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, re I really embraced it, actually. And I think that was one of the draws 
for me wanting to work with someone that I did actually want to have this kind of musical and personal exchange with somebody. And I felt like I wanted to be challenged and I wanted to be asked, why go Why go there, G? Why not go there? Mm. You know, I just I felt like I was really wanting that, you know. Yeah, it's strange because it doesn't, yeah, it's, it's, it's a risk, you know. It was Absolutely. a risk doing this record with yeah. Rostam. I didn't really know how it was going to pan out. We didn't really know each other. We just had this kind of quite exciting session together but it you know proved to be the right decision I've learned so much I feel more than anything I feel like more confident with my vocals with my voice and I think that really is testament to kind of Rostam's encouragement and work ethic with my vocal on this record I sort of feel like a singer really yeah I really felt like on your last record I th- I mm. felt like it was a bit more like experimental and you were doing yeah. some interesting stuff with your voice, but this record is clear singing, clear from the heart. It's been an interesting journey with my vocals because I was never, I don't think people ever saw me as a singer. It was mm. weird. I, like even at school and stuff or in bands, I was kind of like the drummer or the mm. instrumentalist. But I always loved to sing. Mm. And I was always really fascinated by singers in the, you know, with their role within a band or, you know, the solo singer. Mm. But yeah, I think it's it's taken a while for me to feel like I am a singer, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, know that I also like the fact that people can hear, like the fact that you're saying, I can hear that you're, you know, the journey with your voice. Yeah. It's got to, I really love that. You know, yeah. I love I love that people can hear that. I think I wanted the vocals to just be very definitive mm. on each song and confident. Yeah. You know, I just wanted that. I remember um, during the mixing of this record, we were went to upstate New York to Dave Fridman's studio. Oh, wow. And um, it was an incredible experience. And... But during that time, the Rosalia record came out, Motomami. And I remember listening to it and saying to Rostam, you know, damn, have you heard the Rosalia record? It's really good. And the vocals are so crisp and they're so high up in the mix. And I was like, that's, that, I love it. It's almost like you can hear her, like the little, you know, yeah, yeah. on the mics. <laughs> yeah. I love that. And I love that particularly on Ariel by Kate Bush. Oh, yeah. How personal those, mm. those vocals sound. So I, I wanted the record to have that kind of feel with the vocals. Oh, that's great. So you had some real pinpointed records that you could reference. Yeah, I, I I was always the one in the in the mixing room. It's like turn the vocal. Yeah. Usually, I'd be like, turn the vocal down. Too, you know? yeah. <laughs> I'm always um, turn the vocal down. Yeah, it was weird. <laughs> it was kind of, but Rostam did fill me with a lot of encouragement. That mm. gee, you have a great voice. Yeah, it was lovely oh, to hear that. It really was. Really nice. Yeah. Did you ever have singing lessons? Did you ever have any lessons, music related? I did have music. Well, I actually went to the Brit School, which um, is the Free Performing Arts School in London. 
And there I didn't have singing lessons, but I took, you know, you were just encouraged to kind of work, you know, collaborate with other kids and get into bands. And so I spent, yeah, four years between 14 and 18 kind of performing and doing music. We did drama. We did, you know, it it was kind of like a performing arts school. So, um, but to my dad's disliking, I never followed through with grades or anything. He really (laughs) wanted me to get my grade. In Um, piano? Yeah, piano. Did he Um, get his? No. No. (laughs) I think that's why he was like, you know. But actually, his brother, my uncle, went to the Royal Academy of Music. Oh, wow. So there is, on his side, there there is some sort of, you know, quite high up musical kind of... Achievers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. I was just thinking while you were saying that you're encouraged to join bands and perform with other people, Did do you think that that prepared you for doing sessions with strangers, just like opening up to other people like that? That's an interesting question because no. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think anything prepares you from (laughs) getting in a studio and writing with somebody else. It's such a scary thing. I mean, sure, like being in bands, it's like, you know, I actually very early on discovered that I'd never wanted to be in a band because I was just like, oh, my gosh, having to deal with four people yeah. you know or I was just like I, I don't think I'm, I'm cut out for this really so, oh, you did like a bunch of session stuff didn't you I did do yeah I I I used the fact that I could play drums a friend of mine in the music scene who was kind of connected to the label young who was part of XL he asked me to play drums in his band and and that kind of got me into kind of various scenes in London Mm. I didn't mind being a session player I liked that because it Mm. was like jumping from one thing to the other and I think that helped maybe being in sessions but I have to say nothing really prepared me until I just like did my first session with somebody and you kind of force yourself into that uncomfortable situation yeah how did that first one go Oh, awfully, <laughs> I think. Yeah, not very well. But yeah, I can't remember. It was like with this sort of this kind of kid who was signed to Polydor, maybe, or oh, something yeah. like that. And in the end, he thought I was just nicking his ideas. Oh, or... no. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like those very early sort of, <laughs> you know, where you think everyone's a bit like, mm, what is, you know, yeah. anyway. It's bizarre thinking back to, yeah. Yeah, it's it's hell. Thinking back on, it's like thinking about losing your virginity. You're just like, oh, no. It really is. About that ever. Yeah, completely, (laughs) completely. I hadn't thought of that for ages. It was like, it was an ongoing thing as well. Like, even a year or two later, he would still be emailing me going, oh, you know, you've nicked my ideas and all this. This guy's mad, you know. (laughs) Leave me alone. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> but then it obviously worked out uh, in the end with Rostam, who you've yeah. obviously got an amazing relationship with now. Yeah. Um, what were some of your pre-production conversations? Gosh, yeah. I mean, 
endless discussions with Rostam about production and various producers that we loved that we didn't like yeah. why are they big yes <laughs> well I've got nothing to offer or God, you know or we can never be like them you know it was <laughs> yeah yeah that's very important. honest very mm. honest I think actually that's quite an important uh, sort of thing to raise is that I could be honest with him from the get-go I think mm. that's why perhaps it what it works so well in the studio because I do think over the years I've learned that honesty is one of the most important things of being in a studio it's important to go do you know what actually I don't think this idea is really working out let's let's move on you know yeah. actually saying that's quite difficult yeah so it was great to be able to say that to him from the get-go. But yeah, look, look, oh gosh, lots of gear talk. He's really into his equipment and old analog synths and new synths and pieces of equipment like mm. compressors and EQs and various microphones. He loves guitars. I mean, his guitar collection is pretty impressive. Amazing. Yeah, what, we- what kind of synth does he have around? Oh, he has loads. Well, he has the sort of profits. Yeah. He has a few profits. He has a few moogs. He's got, you know, DX7, Junos, All Mellotrons. Classics. Yeah, oh, okay. classics. Yeah. He's, and then he's got some really interesting synths as well that are like the Solaris, which oh, is yeah. pretty amazing. amazing. He actually, during the making of the record, bought that super eight udo oh i love live. those yeah They're which he, he, he really like he really likes classic yeah. since he he's he's got and then but he's got like a an original mellotron incredible so that's amazing yeah you know, to be able to explore that i suppose that you can get equally as paralyzed by the amount of synthesizers and guitars to choose from in mm. real life as you can be from just like figuring out the correct sound within your computer. I think it's sometimes when I was making my record, sometimes I just limit myself to like, okay, today I'm just going to play this mm. one synth and mm. see what comes out of that instead of going, okay, I need this sound mm. and mm. I'm going to go through every single patch on every single synth to see. Yeah. <laughs> I totally get what you're what you're saying there. Yeah, I mean, one interesting thing about Rostam, which is quite inspiring, is that everything in his studio, all the instruments, all the synths, everything, offer a sound, mm. offer something that he knows mm. he can turn to it within within a situation of whoever he's working with yeah so that was really that was really cool he knew that I'd play him one idea and he's you know oh let's get the let's get the you know Fender Strat from 1937 out wow play play a sort of solo on that he's got a lot of gear but it's all functional to how he writes things amazing yeah which is dream yeah which is great to be around because it kind of that that kind of influences you. So now my studio, the synths are all arranged by functionality as well. So I have all like the bass synths. I have all the like your arpeggiators in one side, one thing. You know, so it's just like 
I don't know all these little all these little techniques just help when it comes to the composition. Yeah, mine are organized in I mean the the ones that have a MIDI are closest to the patch bay. Right. And then I think they get older as they go back. Because- cool. <laughs> That's a great collection. It's quite a lot, isn't it? Yeah. Do you do you have a person that you can go to when the older synths kind of freak out? Yeah, I've got one guy. Yeah. I feel yeah, like we've all always, got that one yeah. guy. Yeah, yeah. I feel like there's at least one of my synthesizers in hospital at all times. I was saying <laughs> yesterday to someone that it's almost like a retirement village for for synthesizers in my studio because <laughs> there's always something broken and something that needs to get fixed. So, yeah, there's always a few out of action. But that's what happens when you play old stuff. I actually saw it on your desk when I was watching one of your live performances. I saw that you had a space echo as well. And I was like, oh, yeah. I wonder how her tape's going because ours sometimes gets really wonky. <laughs> I think it only I only turn it on once a year yeah. because yeah. it's like you only get that short amount and then yeah. it's like, oh, yeah. it's gone again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's actually the original left field one as well. Oh, amazing. Yeah, my dad sort of sort of said you can you can look after this oh, I think lovely. I know now why he gave yes. it because it's you know <laughs> true yeah, maybe get someone to put a new tape in exactly exactly <laughs> but no I have I have one guy as well who I send all my synths to yeah and you know he's probably one of the most important people in my life yeah. it's very strange to say but yeah I sort of feel like he's very yeah knowledgeable you sort of think what you know when when those guys kind of go who's gonna be the ones to resolder all of my my connections I suppose that is one of the reasons why my dad always says gee don't don't keep buying the the old synths because one day they are literally probably gonna stop working I always remember the story of um my my friend who Raven Bush who's who's Kate Bush's nephew and he was like we we were very lucky to go around his studio and he's got a load of Kate's old gear oh my god and he's got one of the CS80s that that was actually used on Hounds of Love yeah but he said this is one of five because when they were on when she went on tour they took five CS80s they're like a hundred kilos aren't they holy shit I mean it's just you'd never you'd never hear of that now yeah I mean I'm really impressed by people that are traveling with the big organs or like even like a Rhodes those are so heavy I just can't imagine anyone doing that now but I suppose if you're like Paul McCartney you can do it (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, if it's a big part of the aesthetic, it can be done. It's a massive risk. I, I bought a Wurlitzer last year, and it's it was just so much money that to take it on tour, yeah. I just I'd have a nervous breakdown every yeah, time that's... somebody got it out. I'd be like, yeah. no. <laughs> yeah. I would imagine touring with all of the CS eighties now. They're worth so much money. It's insane. Yeah, and also they're very temperamental. They're yes. also like you turn them on and they That's work right. for about an hour. And yes. then or they, or they need yeah. an hour to heat up and then 
you know a lot of evil players i know from like the 70s are just like why people would pay 25 grand for those synths <laughs> yeah when they literally you turn them on they last about 20 minutes and then yeah it's the quite next funny one, actually the next one comes out from the roadie <laughs> that's broken exactly back. like quick quick <laughs> i don't know if this is still the case if you have a band now but i love that you kind of went from having a band to being a duo to just going no fuck it i'm just gonna do it by myself <laughs> Yeah. Do you still play by yourself mostly? I, no, now I've gone back to having oh, a okay. band, but I wonder how long that will last before I go, fuck it, I'll just do it myself again. <laughs> yeah. It's well, the, the thing is about this new music is there's a lot of live instrumentation on the record, more so than the last two records. I mean, mm. I, you know, there's actual live drums on this record, which I, I hadn't explored previously. So it just felt like, I want to be able to translate the music as best as as I can live. So, you know, add add some more players. But, yeah, it's expensive. But, you know, playing by myself for for as long as I did is quite lonely Mm. on tour. And as much as I love getting up on stage by myself, it is slightly different. It's almost like you're going to battle rather than getting up and, you know, feeling kind of collective energy. It's more like, like oh, get up there. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Totally. There's something really interesting about playing live where if you do something that doesn't quite feel right, mm. you, you can just accept it much easier than feeling like you're like ruining the song or letting anyone else down. Mm. That's always what I feel like. I recently played a show. It was actually at this big gallery in in Tasmania and uh, it was during winter and I was playing out on the the outside stage and they had a big bonfire and there was a (laughs) about five songs into my show, the wind changed and all of the (gasps) smoke from the bonfire went directly into my larynx. And I was like, and and I was like, oh well, I guess I'll just I'll just play this for another three minutes, like and and not sing, and nobody would ever know, you know. I'm just gonna play (laughs) play this chord progression for a while until I recover, (laughs) and it went fine. (laughs) There you go. That sounds hilarious. It's yeah. I mean, it's true. I I think you're very right about that. When you are by yourself, it's it's. It feels like you can turn, you know, things Mm. into your own. Hey, I want to ask you my last question, which is the question that I ask everyone. Can you tell me what's your strangest show experience or the strangest thing that's happened to you because you're a musician? Well, I'm going to go with the strangest thing that's happened to me as a musician. Lovely. Because a lot of of strange stuff has happened to me on (laughs) stage. Yeah. But behind the scenes, a lot of stuff is also like to get to the gigs. Yeah. I've had some very strange experiences and one in particular comes to mind, which was we were on, we were supporting the kills around Mm. Spain. They were sort of in their, you know, big posh Phoenix tour bus. And we were like driving behind in a little Fiat, you know, like... (laughs) Um, and we were driving all through these crazy places across Spain. It was just like how we survived that tour. I have no idea. <laughs> the last show was at Rasmatas in Barcelona. 
and we were we were horribly late for our sound check and we were rushing to get to the venue and as we entered in to barcelona we got pulled over by the police and so we we had to pull over and 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 you know it was all like oh no what have we done you know yeah. and this 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 police guy gets out of the car and knocks on the window and says you know get your passports out get your passports and we were like right we better get our passports out and we're all searching and then suddenly my friend nick who was driving at the time sort of noticed something a bit suspicious about this policeman oh my god he was like sorry where's your you haven't showed us your id or like where he he was saying like hold on hold on don't get your passports out and then this policeman was like no passports 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 <gasps> and and then nick was like sorry i i don't trust you actually are you a policeman and then suddenly we were like show us your id, show <laughs> us your ID. to which point this seemingly so policeman runs back to the car that oh my he, God. the police car he was in drives off <gasps> and we're like what's just happened so then we're like chase him chase <laughs> him so we're chasing this police car trying to get the license plate and I get the license plate yeah. and we arrived to Rasmataz like horribly late for our sound yeah. check. And I called the police after and I'm like, you know, da, da, da. they were like, oh, thank you. Because we've been looking for this gang of criminals who are, who are dressed up as police. Oh, my God. What would have happened if you'd like you, they would have stolen so your passports? Th- apparently what they do is they make you get out of the car. They line you up. And then somebody from the the uh, the police car gets out and steals the the vehicle. Oh my with god! With all your stuff in it, and that had all our gear in it and everything. It. Yeah. So it's not a, a particular stage story, but it is a story about that would never have perhaps happened to me otherwise if I wasn't on this in this little fiat going around supporting the kills. That is wild. That is a yeah. crazy story. Thank you for sharing. That is, yeah, absolutely <laughs> bananas and terrifying. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was so lovely you, to Sarah. talk to you. And you good luck with the, the rest of your stuff in Australia. And let me know if you ever come to Brisbane. I will do. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I hope I come to Brisbane. All right. Well, I'll get in <laughs> okay. touch and talk soon. Talk soon. Okay. Bye. 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 bye.